We're in a series here um, this fall about the church, and we've covered a number of different topics, and I think it was a week ago or two weeks ago we started getting on this topic of authority in the church, and uh, we're at a very thorny passage here. And so let's uh, stand together as I read it, and then we'll take a few minutes to reflect on it together. 1 Timothy chapter 2, let's begin actually back in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modest and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. You may be seated. Let's take a few minutes to reflect together on God's Word. Somebody on the worship team, when we were practicing this morning, we were talking about this passage briefly. And they said, well, it's been nice knowing you. And then my daughter leans over to me just as I'm having this moment of silence with the Lord and interrupts it saying, make sure you schedule no office hours this week. So... I wonder if anybody wants to trade places with me this morning. I'm okay with that. One of the most troubling verses in the Bible is found uh, not here, actually, but at the end of Judges, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It's the very end of the book. And it says this, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, Israel had no king, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, imagine just for a moment what it might look like to live in a society with absolutely no authoritative structure. You live in a city, you live in a culture, you live in a society where there's, there is no king, there is no authority. You, you are the authority. There's, there's no authority, there's just autonomy. You get to live like whatever you want. You can do whatever you want and nobody's going to get on you about it. And there is a little piece of that, is there not, that you think, hmm, I'd like to give that a try. Except when you think, but everyone else gets to do the same. Uh, Webster's defines that not, uh, not in any good way. It defines it as anarchy or chaos. When, when there is no authoritative structure, then you don't have freedom. You have 
anarchy. And God's solution to anarchy is authority. And we see that in a number of different places in the Bible. Actually, it's very easy to point out places in the Bible where God has uh, imposed structure, good structure for the health of human beings. Because human beings were designed and created uh, not to just live under authority, but to thrive under authority. It's not some sort of oppressive scheme so people feel downtrodden. It's no, this is the best environment for human beings to flourish. And God has seen that this is the best environment, so He's created lots of authoritative structures, and we see them in different places in the Bible. First, we talked about this last week extensively from Ephesians 1.20, that Jesus is the supreme authority. Christ was raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age but in the age to come. Everything is underneath His feet. The Apostle Paul is trying to say in in as big a words as he can, everything is under Christ's authority. So he's, he's the spine. He's the one that everyone gets their authority from. He, he did, makes the decisions over all things. Nothing is outside of his authority, whether it's in this age or the age to come. So we see that authoritative structure. Secondly, we see that God designed civil authority. 1 Peter 2, you may remember we talked about this in that, that series last year. 1 Peter 2, 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Whether to the king as the supreme authority or to a governor who are sent by the kings to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. So Peter, living in a time where the authority structure was hostile to Christianity, understood that still that was God's design, that there was supposed to be some civil governing authority. And the primary role for that governing authority was to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Because if we don't have some kind of structure in our society, whatever it may be, that, that doesn't punish those who do wrong and that doesn't commend those who do right, then we just have anarchy. So God has designed civil authority. God has designed structure and authority in the family. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. We've done a sermon on this as well, but it's worth repeating that at Christ Community Church, in theological terms, we are complementarians, not egalitarians, meaning we believe the Bible describes the role of a wife as one which complements her husband, but is not designed to be the exact same role as her husband. John Piper says it this way, Sin did not create manhood and womanhood. God did. Sin did not not bring diversified, complementary, complementary roles into existence. God did. Before sin ever entered the world, God ordained and fitted Adam to be a loving, caring, strong leader for his wife, Eve. And before sin entered the world, God ordained and fitted Eve to be a partner who supports and honors the leadership, that leadership, and helps carry it through. Now listen carefully. Both are in the image of God. Both equal in their godlike personhood. 
but also different in their manhood and womanhood. The pattern was beautiful. They respected each other. They served each other. They complimented each other, and they enjoyed each other. So whatever you take, you may have particularly on this verse in Ephesians and the structure. I think we could all agree that if Christ is the head of the church, he has a different role than the church. And so if the husband is the head of the wife, then the husband has a different kind of role. There is some kind of authoritative structure in the family. And a family that doesn't have some kind of authoritative structure is a family in chaos. And especially if you begin to introduce children into a family and that family doesn't have good boundaries, you have a family that's in chaos. It's in anarchy. And so God has seen that there needs to be some sort of authoritative structure. Ephesians 6 picks up on that and provides additional structure to the family, saying, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. So the husband and wife as a team, they exercise authority over the children. And then finally, the Bible outlines some authority structure in the church. And we took, take a look at this, Matthew 16, Acts 20, Titus 1, Hebrews 13. But let's just take remind ourselves of this in 1, Peter, I mean 1 Timothy 5.17, the verse that we read. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So whatever we may conclude, there's a group of people that are going to be in the church that are going to be called elders, and whoever that makes up, they're going to be ruling over the church because if we don't have that, God sees that that just breaks down in anarchy. And so elders are leaders in the church who rule. They have authority. And I'm going to conclude from our text today that this authority is given to some qualified men. Some qualified men are the ones who are supposed to rule or have authority. And so these elders exercise authority over everyone else in the congregation. They don't just exercise. It's not you come into Christ Community Church and men exercise authority over women. That's not what this text is talking about. This text is talking about some qualified men, and you get the qualifications in 1 Peter chapter 3, or 1 Timothy chapter 3. Those qualified men are exercising authority over all the congregation, both men and women. So we have that structure here. And let me make a few observations before we look at the text that might be helpful. We know from Genesis chapter 3 when humanity unsuccessfully tried to overthrow God and become the supreme authority, which they could not do and did not do, ever since that point in Genesis chapter 3, humanity's been struggling with authority. It's like we're hardwired. We just wake up saying, I want to be king. I want to make the decisions. I want to make the call. It doesn't really matter what kind of structure it is. You just want your way. And you mostly think your way is better than everybody else's way. And if everybody would just listen to you, it would just go a whole lot better. Now, you don't say that a lot, but probably you feel that. You think that a lot. And that's just hardwired into, I just don't want to have that authority. I don't feel like I'm thriving underneath that. And that began in Genesis chapter 3. We, we became resentful. We became suspicious of authority. 
I'd taken some college kids on a trip up to a young life camp called Windy Gap. And when we got back towards town, we were kind of cruising through town, getting back to the university, and we were at a stoplight, and a police car came up beside us. And several of the students looked out and saw saw it was a police car, and one of the students said, Look, there's the enemy. I don't know what kind of interface that student had with the police at some point. Maybe it wasn't very favorable. It didn't seem like it was real favorable. But my guess there's a little feeling of that. You can understand that. Police car comes up behind you. You don't go, wow, I'm so glad he's out here for the safety of our city. You don't you get nervous, you feel like it's it's an attack, it's something that you're trying to get away from or move around. I'm gonna take a right up here just to get away from this guy, even though that's not the direction I'm trying to go. Now I know none of you all do that. I'm just saying I've read books and stuff. But as Christians, we, we trust that God we as Christians, this is what we trust. In the best way. We're stuck with the Bible. I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that this is this. We can't trust ourselves, so we've got to trust God putting stuff down and saying, "Hey, Paul, I know you're not smart enough to figure this out, but you're going to thrive underneath authority. And if you don't have authority in your life, it's going to be anarchy. Anarchy for your soul. Anarchy for your mind. Anarchy for your body. Anarchy for a city. So I've designed this authoritative structure that your church, the city, your family can grow and thrive in. And so we understand that as Christians, and and we need to trust that the structure is for our good. We have to, to lean in to authority rather to, than to lean away or consider authority in whatever way it comes as evil. Second observation, uh, structures of authority may overlap yet are distinct. Structures of authority and God's plan may overlap, but yet there's distinction. If you go out the, the main door here, and you sort of park off to the left, you'll walk down the sidewalk, and you've, if whether you've seen it or not, you've seen it many times, a little bicycle rack. You've seen it out there? It's like in the middle of the pine straw natural area. And if you're like me, you're thinking, why do they have a bicycle rack here? I mean, it's not like we have a lot of bicyclists coming to Christ's community. And it's certainly not in an inviting place. It's in the middle of this natural area. Well, why do we have a little bicycle rack out there? Because when we built the building, the city said, guess what, Christ Community Church, you need a bicycle rack. And they have the authority. But thankfully, they don't have the authority to get me up on Sunday and say, Paul, here's the order of worship today. Here's what you should teach on. So there, there are some authority structures that overlap, but yet there are some distinction. When you come to Christ Community Church, there's a group of elders, one of which I, I'm in that group. And we exercise authority here in this place. When there's something that's going on with the church, whether it's a fall festival, whether it's your small group, whether it's missions, whether it's a youth group, we're exercising this umbrella authority over the activities that happen at the church. But when I go to your home, I don't have authority in your home. I'm not the head of your wife. I don't have authority over your children. You, that's, that's you. 
So when I go to visit your home, I'm underneath your authority. So there's going to be some overlap. There's going to be distinction. In a church, invariably, there's going to be two people who come from the same company. And it will happen that in the church, it's possible that one of the, one of the people will have a position of authority, would be an elder. And in the church would be their boss. But see, when they get to work, the elder doesn't have authority over the boss. The boss has authority over the elder. And so there's all kinds of distinctions, and yet there's going to be some overlap in all of these things. Third observation, third and final observation before I get to this text. Authority in a relationship does not compromise or negate equality. Authority in a relationship doesn't negate or compromise in any way equality. If you come to an inquirer's weekend, I ask this question, is it possible to have submission and equality in the same relationship? Is it possible to be in a relationship that in the same relationship you'd have submission and equality? Answer? Definitely, yes. See that primarily in the Trinity. Jesus equal with God, yet when He comes, He says, I'm here under authority. I'm here just to do what the Father wants. You remember it most poignantly when He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, this is what I want. If there's any other way beyond this way, I'm looking for the exit ramp right now. And then what does he say? But not, not my will, but your will. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what I'm, I want, but I'm putting myself underneath your authority. And yet they have equality. You see the same thing happen in a marriage. You could have it in a number of other places. So we're not talking about something that doesn't make two people equal, even though there's authority inside the relationship. Okay, let's look at this text here, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. The first thing to notice, and the reason I went backwards to verse 8, is to notice that Paul's comments to Timothy lie in the instructions or are embedded in these instructions concerning appropriate conduct when the church is gathered. That's the context. He's saying Timothy, Timothy is Paul's protege. He's left Timothy in Ephesus. And Paul's saying, okay, Timothy, now you're running the church. I'm going to send you back some instructions of how, how to run your church. And that's really what 1 Timothy is all about. And he comes to instructions about worship. And you just notice in verse 8, he says, men need to check their attitude. Whether that's a universal statement or something issued right there because of uh, the men in Ephesus. But men, when you come through the door, you need to check your attitude. We don't want people coming in there angry. We don't want it, people are coming in there quarrelsome. You've got you to gotta check that at the door. Women, you have to check your attire at the door. We don't want you coming in and, and creating a distraction or a disruption for other women or men. And so we're talking about what happens in the context of the worship service. This is what Paul's talking about. And then he goes on in these verses 11 through 14, and he provides some structure for this. And there's three key words that I want to talk about. Quietness, in some of your versions it'll say silence. 
teaching. Do not permit a woman to teach and authority. What are those three? Those, those are the three key words, I think, in this text. First, uh, quietness. I don't think Paul is saying when women come to church they shouldn't speak. I mean, if you just lift the, that, that out of the context, that's what you could make it sound like. But I don't think he's saying that because, first of all, the context, Paul's specifically relating, you notice, the quietness to teaching and authority. That's the point at which we need quietness is when there's teaching and authority going on. And two, we know from reading other letters of Paul, Paul specifically talks about women praying and prophesying in the church. So I don't know if you've noticed, but it's very hard to pray and prophesy if you don't speak. And so he must not be saying absolute silence or absolute quiet. I think Paul is saying this quietness is referring to not speaking in a way that would compromise the authority of an elder. That's what he's talking about. Inside the, the, the congregation, women shouldn't be speaking in a way that overrides the authority of the elders. And I would say no one should be speaking in a way that overrides the authority of the elders, whether you're a man or a woman. Second, teaching. When you hear, when you hear this phrase in uh, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach, then you have to ask yourself, well, how extensive is Paul's restriction? And again, I'm going to go back to other places in the Bible. I'm not going to let this just be the only context. When you're reading things in the Bible, the context of a passage in the Bible is the whole Bible. So you look around and say, well, does this mean women can't teach? And the answer to that is no. That's not what Paul's saying because we know in Titus 2, he says older women teach the younger women. We know in 2 Timothy, he applauds the teaching of a mother and grandmother to Timothy himself. We, we, we know that um, Apollos, who was the great evangelist, the great preacher that came to Ephesus or came to Corinth, uh, these two, this husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, they took Apollos into their house and together they taught Apollos a better way of thinking about the Scriptures than he knew previously. So I don't think... In 1 Timothy, Paul is talking about not teaching in, in any category. I think he's drawing a very specific boundary, and that is the teaching Paul is referring to is when the teaching aim is to exercise authority in the church. So one question I heard in my study this week was, should a man be taught by Beth Moore or K. Arthur? Or Amgrand Lotz. And you can pick your favorite female teacher. Is that okay? And I would say, yeah, that's okay. As long as that's not done in the, ter- in, in the situation of authority. And most of the times when you have those Bible studies, they're here at the church or in your house and you're learning something, and I think it's fine. All ki- you can see all kinds of questions and scenarios come into this. You can probably think, you just in your mind right now. Well, what about... And I think the elders have to exercise wisdom at that point as to knowing where to navigate uh, in a way that would be healthy for the congregation. So I don't think Paul is saying that they have to be absolute, absolutely silent. He's talking about a silence when it comes to authoritative preaching or teaching or rule. 
I don't think he's talking about women never teaching. I think he's affirming women's gifts and teaching in many ways. He's talking again. He's limiting this boundary around authority. And let's get to that last word, authority. In 1 Timothy 5.17, we know that the authority or the rule is with the elders. And so, because the rule or the authority is with the elders, Paul is saying women shouldn't hold the office of elder. Does that make sense? He's saying in chapter 5, the elders are the ones who rule. And then here he's saying in chapter 2, I'm not permitting women to rule over men. So I think Paul's concluding here, and this is a conclusion I'm also drawing, that women shouldn't hold the office of elder. Now, I realize just saying that probably puts me more in the minority than the majority, number one. Number two, I have great pastor friends who completely disagree with my conclusion, and I understand that. But I'm trying to do the best I can from what I think the Scripture's saying here and not trying to draw my conclusions based on what the society has to say because that's always a dangerous thing to do. And so I'm going to kind of show you where I get my argument from and you can decide for yourself here. The question I come to at this particular point is this question that we faced a couple of weeks ago. Is Paul describing a situation... Or is he prescribing something that should happen? That's the way you should probably think about this discussion. When you read these particular verses, you come to these verses, and, and this would happen all kind, in all kinds of times. And let me just give you another example. I think I used this a few weeks ago. In Acts, it uh, talks about the early church bringing all of their possessions to the church, and then the church would distribute the possessions to people who had need. Now, is Acts prescribing that's the way every church should do it, or is it just describing the way that church did it? See, if it's prescribing it, that means you should go go home, get all of your stuff and bring it here, and then we would distribute it. And I think you would say, no, I don't think that's what it's saying. I think you would say, no, it's just describing how the early church did it. It's not saying it has to be for every church. And that's the question here. This is the big question in this text. Is Paul just describing a particular problem in Ephesus and he's saying, hey, the answer to this problem is this situation. We don't need to have women have rule or authority over men in your church because it's creating disruption. So it's just describing, but it's not something that's meant to be universal. Or is he prescribing something saying, yes, this is what needs to happen in this church and it should be the model for every church? That's the big question. And my answer, because I'm reading verses 13 and 14, is that Paul is prescribing. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. This is what he says. Notice this. Uh, let's go back to verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet for, okay, for, that's an important word, for, and then he's going to give the reason. If the reason was cultural, he'd say, for, I've noticed when I was in Ephesus these, these particular problems, and here's the solution. But he doesn't say that. He goes back to Genesis 
And he says, I'm grounding my answer to your problems or your question in something that was from the very beginning that has carried all the way to this point and I think continues to to carry forward. Four, and then he goes back to Genesis. He's grounding it in Genesis. And let's look at the two things that he says. Four, Adam was formed first, then Eve. So one of his reasons, Paul is saying, it's not good to have a church in the authority structure and have women in authority positions is because when he goes back to Genesis chapter 1, he sees that Adam was formed first and then Eve. So God created man first, put him in the garden, gave him responsibility over the garden. Then he created woman as a partner who would help him carry out that responsibility. So Paul's taking the priority in Genesis and he brings it into the church. So he's not basing his conclusions on what happened in Ephesus. He's basing his conclusion on what happened in creation. So in the the fabric of creation is manhood and womanhood, and there's structure in that. And Paul's relying on that from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. So it's helpful to remember that, again, this is repetitive, the structure that God has designed in a marriage relationship is a good thing. It didn't happen as a result of the fall. It was meant to be this way from the beginning. When we're doing our iron leadership on Friday mornings, one of the, the topic that we're mainly talking about is men and work. And what I've had to repeat over and over again is that work is part of the good part of creation. And I've been in several different small groups when we break up and, and men will say, I always thought it was part of the fall. I thought we were stuck with work. And I'm like, no, no, no. God created work to be a good thing. Now, it may be bad for you, and there's reasons for that because of your sin or somebody else's sin, but work itself is good. Why? Because in the beginning, God created. He was a worker. And so when you work, you're exercising some image of God in some way. And when we have authority in a family structure, it's because it's a good thing that God has put there. Verse 14. So he he sees this good thing in creation, and then he says this in verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What Paul is describing here is a failure of leadership, not weakness from the woman. I think that would be an easy thing to conclude is to say, it sounds like what he's saying is that women are just a lot more gullible. And so we don't want gullible people being in authority. And that's not what the text is saying. The text is saying that there was a failure in leadership. The the verse is describing the failure in Adam's leadership. Satan knew the created order by God's design. He ignored the created order. And instead of going to the the person who was in authority, what did he decide to do? He decided to do an in-run. And he decided to come to where the woman was. And I'm going to place her in a position that she's not supposed to be. I'm going to place her in a position of being the spokesman, the leader, the defender. And while I'm doing this... While Satan's doing this, what's Adam doing? He's just passively 
at arm's distance and no further standing by and watching this destruction of his wife. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 3. Satan sees God's good structure and he says, I don't like the way God does things. I always want to turn it upside down. So I'm going to go to the woman and I'm going to make her be in a position where she has to lead. She has to defend. She's got to be the person that's on the front line. And Adam, one arm's length away, hears the conversation, can reach out and grab the apple when she hands it to him and watches the destruction of his wife passively and the destruction of all creation passively. Passively at that moment. And we know for sure Adam is the primary problem because when God comes walking back in the garden, what's the very first thing he says? Adam, where are you? Could have said Adam and Eve. Could have said Eve. But see, God had designed a structure, and I'm going to go to the boss. And I'm going to say, where were you when you were, what, what, do you have any idea what, what has happened? Do you have any idea what your passive leadership has led to? Do you understand that you stood by and you watched your wife just crumble and you were meant to stand in, in between And you didn't do that. So now what do we need? We need a new Adam. We need somebody that in a garden will stand between us and Satan. We, we need a new Adam who will stand between evil. And even if it cost him his life, he's going to stand there and take it for his bride, the church. You see, the gospel is wrapped up in this moment. So when we get to this point, we realize there's got to be another person in the garden who does stand against evil and protects me from evil. And we know that person to be Christ. So I'm no longer under Adam's headship. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.17 I am a new creation in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. Why? Because I'm underneath this Adam now. I had to get the gospel in this sermon somewhere, difficult as it is. Paul's reasoning from Genesis leads me to believe that the instructions are prescriptive, not descriptive. So his instructions for the church in 65 AD, I think, play to the church in 2013 in Wilmington. Let me close with a couple of comments. Because Paul is intentionally narrow here in terms of his boundary for authority, it's inside this church for some qualified men to be elders. I don't think he sets the same restrictions on non-authoritative roles, namely deacons. So if you look in this particular text, you notice that he talks about this at the end of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he goes to qualifications, qualifications for overseers or elders. That's chapter 3, verse 1. And he goes down in chapter 3, verse 8, deacons. We know deacons are table waiters. They don't rule. They don't need to be teachers. 
specifically says that. Instead, because they're serving physical needs of the people in the church. And their, their service certainly means that they're going to exercise leadership, but they're not going to exercise authority. And I think Paul specifically has women in mind to serve in this role because in chapter 3, verse 11, he says their wives, or in the Greek it actually means women, likewise must have these qualifications. So again, regardless of what your view is here, and I think it's, it's, it's much better to see the view here as women as deacons, not the wives of the deacons. But regardless, even if that is your view, you still see that women have to be in this role. There's going to be all kinds of physical needs in the church. They're not going to, be, they're not going to require authority. They're just going to require leadership. And we must have some women in those roles for the church to be healthy. So I would say for Christ Community Church, we really have excellent deacons. They, they come early. They do some things that you wouldn't want to do. I mean, I was, I was here not long ago, and one of the deacons said, yeah, I had to clean up the boy's bathroom, and one of the little kids missed the toilet. And I, he didn't say who it was, but I've had a boy who had bad aim before. So I understand what he meant, and I thought nobody knows that. That's the kind of stuff that deacons get involved with. So I'm, I'm, I'm lifting up, I'm holding up what they do, but we don't have any women. And I think as a church, we'd be better served if we had women as deacons who would help serve some of the needs that women uniquely have. Second closing comment. If you have a closing comment, you're supposed to just have one, right? But I'm having two here. This is what I don't like about this topic and perhaps what I don't even like about my own sermon. Maybe it's only me. But when I get into discussions about this or I read stuff like I have this week about this particular topic, it feels like the focus is on the boundary and not the bounty. It feels like to me that when I get into discussions about this, the focus is all on the boundary. Kind of like if Adam and Eve were in the garden and all they did was look at the one tree they weren't supposed to eat fruit off of. And they just pitched their tent there and they spent the whole time. They got up every morning. This is the one tree. I can't believe this one tree. We can't have fruit from this one tree. Every day they got up. Instead, look behind and see a bounty of trees. And even beyond that, a whole globe to populate. And an incredible amount of things open. But they camp at the one place that they can't do anything about. And a lot of times the discussion kind of seems that way. Even in my own mind, I'm confessing to you here. It just feels like you come and say, let's just examine the boundary. And of course, there is a boundary. But I don't want that to be the main focus. I don't, wouldn't want any person, especially any women, to come back and just feel like, oh, he just kind of caged me in. Like it's a heavy boundary. No, there's a whole bounty of things that we must have for men and women to do who aren't going to be elders. And I want you to see the bounty of that and see that whatever authoritative structure that you have, and we have one here at Christ Community Church, the design is for your thriving. It's for your good, and I think that's the way God meant it. 
we know there's no inequality in this kind of relationship because Paul says it himself in Galatians. In Christ, there is neither. There's no Jew, no Greek. There's no slave nor free. There's nor, no male nor female. Let's pray together. Lord, these are words that you uh, gave us. You didn't just give Paul words to Timothy. You, you had this recorded for people who lived in Wilmington in the year 2013. And so I pray that your word would, would go out and it would teach, it would correct, it would encourage in, in such a way that it would profit this church, this city, a family, a community, and above all, your own name. To that name be all glory and majesty and honor forever and ever. Amen.